The following message was given by Shelby Murphy on Sunday, September 10th at Redemption Hill Church. For more information about the church, visit us online at www.redemptionhill.org. It's good to see you guys again. For those who don't know me, my name is Shelby and I'm one of the pastors here. If you got your Bibles, uh, turn with me over to Proverbs chapter 16. We will be looking at verse 25 uh, this morning. And this will be our final leg, uh, the final leg of our summer series in Proverbs, um, at least for this summer. We'll, we'll, we'll see about next summer. Uh, but before we get into our final text today, I have a few updates um, for you as, as well. First, um, the elders have been in communication uh, with Robert during his um, uh, sabbatical. And if you didn't know, he has been working closely with an outfit that specializes in sabbaticals for pastors and other ministry leaders, uh, focusing on their um, uh, relational health and, um, as well as, as their spiritual vitality. They recently came to us and suggested that we extend Robert's sabbatical through the end of October. Not for anything unhealthy in um, a Robert situation, but simply because the sabbatical period recommended by this outfit is, is normally 12 weeks uh, with some extra time on the front end and back end. So with that recommendation, um, along with Robert's endorsement of it, uh, the elders were happy to grant that um, uh, extension. So, Robert's sabbatical will extend through the end of October, probably into that top of November sometime. Um, we got some, we got some um, wiggle room there. And please hear me. Let this be a, um, a reminder to us. This is a good thing. This is an absolute gift to Redemption Hill Church. This is an opportunity for us to be obedient to God's word and honor Robert and his family. He has faithfully taught us the word of God. And this is a way for us to not only honor him, but to invest in his joy and to invest in his faith. We are called to imitate the faith of our leaders, so why wouldn't we want his faith to be as strong as possible? This is also a worshipful expression of our trust in God, that he will continue to provide for us his people, just as he's promised. It's an expression of faith that says God is ultimately in control here. Now, with that said, what does that practically mean for us on Sundays during this time? Well, one thing that we had been praying and planning towards this fall was a new sermon series walking through the gospel of Matthew. This is still in the works, uh, but with this sabbatical extension, we thought it best to wait for Robert's return to start that series. So we needed a sort of um, a go-between series. Therefore, let me share with you what we will, we will be starting next week. We have spent the summer looking at the minutia, the day-to-day -day wisdom required of this Christian life in Proverbs. We've been staring at trees for, for five months. 
And now before we get to the life of Jesus in Matthew, we want to take a moment and zoom out and look at the forest. Considering the cosmic realities of Jesus. So beginning next week, we will be looking at the glory of Christ in Hebrews. And the goal isn't to exhaustively preach through Hebrews. Let me just burst that bubble right now. Uh, But to take a moment before we jump into a gospel to zoom out and behold the glory of Christ throughout all time, throughout all of redemptive history, using Hebrews as a jumping off point. Mark, Raymond, Tim, myself will all be up here during this time leading us through these rich texts in Hebrews to help us remember what's at the core of this Christian life. The orienting reality of all of our fellowship, all of our service, and all of our worship. That reigning over all of creation is a crucified Messiah and risen Lord of the world. And it's easy for us to lose sight of the lordship and glory of Jesus when we're so prone to putting ourselves on the throne, as we've seen in Proverbs So we want to take a few weeks to reorient ourselves to this glorious and praiseworthy reality. And it's it's somewhat fitting that we sang, turn your eyes upon Jesus this morning. As, As I've always had an issue with one of the lines in that hymn. And so it comes as a surprise to you. The things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. Let me explain. Um, the more I've considered that line, the conclusion I've come to is that it's only a partial truth. True for one aspect of our earthly existence, those temporal concerns, anxieties, and worries that keep us preoccupied when we lose sight of the big picture of a big Jesus. But most of the time, when we turn our eyes upon Jesus, the things of earth grow clearer, not dimmer. We interpret the things of earth with more insight, with wisdom from above, with the sharpness of clarity that comes from the Spirit. And that is our hope with this new series, to put things in perspective, to make the outlines and edges of our reality come into sharper focus because our lens is zoomed in and laser focused on Jesus the King. So Mark will be up here next week. As we look at those worshipful opening verses to the book of Hebrews that point us to Jesus. The definitive revelation of God. The very glory of God who is able to purify us from sin. I think that's all of my updates. Good stuff, people. Uh, So let's turn our attention back to our text this morning and uh, the tree that we will be staring at today. Uh, Proverbs 16 uh, 25. Let me, let me read this text for us and then um, I want to pray for us. Proverbs 16, 25 says this. There is a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way to death. This is God's word. So let's pray and let's ask him for help this morning. Father, we... This is such a rich morning already. We thank you and praise you for all that you are doing in our midst. Thank you that we can celebrate new lives being brought into your kingdom. 
Thank you for raising them to new life in you. May it be a testimony to your saving power at work in the midst of us and a reminder to all of us how you've called us into your kingdom. Father, thank you for caring for Robert and his family. Thank you for blessing us with the means to ensure that he is cared for well. Thank you for the excitement and eagerness and anticipation of a new year of student ministry. And we pray for those leading our youth that they would not only be sensitive to your word, but to the words of our kids. Give them wisdom to speak and to pray into every situation they encounter. And we look forward to testimonies of youth coming to a saving knowledge of you. New lives being born into your kingdom. New friendships being, fo- being formed. And we also thank you for the numerous classes and opportunities to dig into your word and learn the various nuances found within. I am continually grateful to you for the men and women you have placed in this church who love your word. And who love to share it with others. May we never take it for granted. And may we continue to ask for more. More men and women who love your word. More of your word seeping into every crevice of our lives. More changed lives from your word working in our midst. More understanding of what you are speaking to us today. It should always leave us in awe to hear and to read your words. So bring us to our knees today. May these words be a balm to our ravaged souls. May these words bring life to us today where death has abounded. May we find peace and comfort in your words today. And we ask all this in in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, if you haven't noticed, I am um, uh, amending our text this morning from your bulletins to really only focus on, on this verse, verse 25. Um, uh, amending it for time purposes, uh, as well as I simply like this verse, and I think it's a fitting end to our time in Proverbs. As we peruse the Proverbs this summer, we've hit on topics dealing with our mouths, our money, the fear of the Lord, our parenting prowess, our care for the unborn, all the way to how clean or messy our houses are. Um, and today, I, I hope to sum, sum up what is at stake in, in all of these Proverbs. And what's at stake is life and death. This is what our proverb tells us today. And what I hope to leave you with. Life and death are both major themes of this book. The word life and live occur about 56 times in this book. And the words death and die around 20 times. And our text this morning is a warning to us. And it's so important that this is the second time that it's actually showed up in Proverbs. Same text, same language. The first time was back in chapter 14, verse 12. And what Proverbs is giving us here is a more nuanced definition of this word death. A more holistic look at this word. While having life is more than having a pulse, death is also shown here as more than not having a pulse. 
Wisdom sees death as not just a physical event or singular moment, but wisdom sees death as a whole realm, a whole domain of human existence in conflict with life. It's not just a singular moment. And one way the Old Testament in particular talks about death is by describing a realm of death called Sheol, or literally a house of death. It's the realm of the dead. It's where all the dead go, both figuratively and literally, i.e. a graveyard. It's even personified in those opening chapters to Proverbs, chapters 1 through 9, where Lady Folly's house and the meal she serves there is characterized by death. Humanity's accuser, Satan, is prince over this house of the dead. Death is his hangman. Death is his jailer. The dragon, the great serpent, has been cast down to eat dirt for the rest of his days. And the dirt he, eat, he eats is that of his realm, the grave, as Genesis 3.14 tells us. This realm, this place of the dead, is enemy territory, ruled by the first and greatest enemy of humankind, the accuser. And according to the book of Proverbs, as well as some other texts, death is both an event and a state beyond that event. Because you see, death, death casts a shadow over each one of us today. Death is sneaking up on every single one of us, even now. It's encroaching on our life in the form of sickness, cancer, in the form of, of aging, suffering, fear, guilt, anxiety, confusion, boredom, and above all, sin. Any weakening of our vitality is death, and no one is immune to its effects. But we as God's redeemed also understand that real life is more than a beating heart. Real life is a vitality that only God can give us. And he does give it gladly and freely through the finished work of Christ on the cross. And we receive this vitality as we press the gospel into our hearts by faith. The risen Christ tells us today, fear not, I am the first and the last and the living one. As we've seen in Proverbs, week after week, we sinners, we fools, stumble into the territory of death every day. And within all of these seemingly innocuous Proverbs, God is counseling us. He's warning us where death lurks. Think back to Proverbs 9, when our wise father warns his son against sexual sin. What does he say? He tells him, the dead are there. There is death in, in that sexual sin. There is a lowercase hell before there's a capital hell. But there's also a lowercase heaven before a capital heaven. Jesus has told us, I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. Jesus also tells us, I came um, because I live, you also will live. 
And this is God's desire for each and every one of us today, to die less and to live more through Christ. He alone can set our consciences free from regret and dread and all forms of death. Christ spreads new life to sinners and on his terms, terms of grace, life pours out of him. And we can do this by believing his word more than we believe anything else. So if you haven't guessed already, these 18 words are weighty. They're meaningful to me for all the reasons I, 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 I just mentioned. Most of my favorite movies are movies that illustrate this proverb. If you want to know what those are, catch me afterwards. But here in the middle of chapter 16, we have this stop sign, this flashing red light in verse 25. I would actually um, uh, encourage you to read this whole chapter on your own sometime. And you'll get a better view of just how stark this verse is in context with the ones um, around it. Especially the ones right before it. Because the, uh, the first part of this chapter displays a sovereign God working through the wise words and dealings of a man of wisdom. His good sense is likened to a fountain of life in verse 22. And right after we get a verse in 24 commending the good actions and speech of the wise at heart, comes this stern warning. There is a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way to death. Now, a, a whole lot could be said concerning this verse, more than we have time for this morning. Most of what I read and studied honed in on that word seems. That word deals with our emotions, our feelings. We are all so easily swayed by our own feelings in various circumstances. I feel like I should do this. This way feels right. But the fool here is the one who lets his emotions determine his decisions. He takes the way that seems right, going by what he feels. And in the end, it's a way that leads to death. And again, placed here within the context of the rest of this chapter, this proverb is warning us not to assume that we are the good guys, but rather to take a careful look at our lives, examining ourselves to see if any turning aside from evil is called for. Because we so often have the wrong idea about what is good for us and what is bad for us. What we deem right may actually be wrong and the easy things may not actually lead us to life. So often we justify our sin by saying, well, it just feels right. And so if it feels right, then God must want me to have it. We're some little kid sneaking off to eat candy bars so mom doesn't catch us. The same mom who knows that eating all that candy won't be good for us. And yet we come out like a child from behind the couch with our chocolate covered faces saying, but God, it feels so right. And certainly you want me to have what is good. You want me to enjoy this life, right? But as we've been reminded over 
And over and over again, none of us escape wearing a name tag that says fool in Proverbs. All of us screw up either through our actions, our frivolous words, or our prideful thoughts. On top of that, this life is hard. If you call yourself a Christian today, you were not promised an easy life. In fact, it's quite the opposite. And all of these things are meant to form us, to shape us, to reorient our lives daily. To turn our eyes back to Jesus and to follow his path. A path that leads us in abundant life. It's not just about what feels right or easy. It's not about how we feel about something, but rather it's about what God's doing in the midst of hard things, even in the consequences of our disobedience and sin. We should be Christ-oriented people more than feeling-oriented people. Still have feelings, yes. Still express those feelings. We are not just brains on toothpicks. At the same time, we're not to let our emotions dictate our beliefs about God. Christ leads us in right thinking and right feeling. After all, he created our emotions. If you want to hear more about that, then you can sign up for my class in November on physical expression. There's my little plug. Like that. However, with our um, uh, remaining time this morning, I, I actually don't want to dwell on this with us today. Because the more I've stared and meditated on this verse, uh, the more I've come to this conclusion. The key metaphor here is way and end. There is a road and there's a destination. The question for all of us today is, in light of this verse, where are you going with your life? Is it death? Is it a journey that's just piling on death after death after death? Or is it life? Because we're all on a journey. I don't want to sound cliche. We may be able to choose our own path, but we cannot choose our own consequences. We can't choose our own destination. So I want to help us today to consider the path of life. Or as Proverbs 12, 28 says, in the path of righteousness only is life. And in its pathway, there is no death. That only is what is actually implied in this proverb. Proverbs has laid out a path for us to follow. A path of righteousness that has week in and week out pointed us to a wisdom personified in Jesus. A path of wise living trailblazed by Jesus. So I want us to consider the path that we're on today. And as we've seen in this series, this path requires a standard of living from, from us that some of us may not be used to. And I want us to look at a few verses today, starting with this one. Two questions immediately stick out to me here in this verse. What is righteousness? Why is this the path we want to be on? 
And whose righteousness are we following here? Is it ours? Does all that right living um, um, uh, amount to us leading the way or someone else's? Is this path some sort of legalism? And I'll explain that word a little bit later. Are all the Proverbs we've looked at, are they some sort of checklist, some rules to follow, some sort of pay-as-you-go plan? If this was a video game, is righteousness a reward for completing missions? So let's get going. What is righteousness? Well, back a number of books in Deuteronomy, Moses is talking about weights, um, talking about the weights that people used in the marketplace to measure the goods that they were selling. He says this in Deuteronomy 25, a full and fair weight you shall have, a full and fair measure you shall have. That your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. If a weight says eight ounces, then it should be eight ounces. There's no cheating going on. The weight is true and fair. That eight ounces on that scale is an objective reality. And the word translated fair in that verse is where we get our word righteous. A righteous weight represents the true objective standard. A righteous person sees a standard outside of himself. He sees outside of himself what a human being should be, what life on this spinning mud ball should look like. And he acknowledges, he submits to the truth that the standard is Christ. A righteous person bows down before Christ and says, I want to be true, not to myself, but to you. And if that sounds weird to you, it shouldn't. This shouldn't be something foreign to any of us, this, this idea. It shouldn't come as any surprise that we, as sophisticated 21st century people, have no problems with external standards. We don't need to look any further than our magazine subscriptions, our, church, our search histories, our endless scrolling and dreaming on Instagram, our Pinterest boards, our using filters on the pictures we share. We want to look good. We want to look cool. And this standard of coolness controls how we dress, and, and more, how we act, how we live. We adjust our lives daily to some sort of external earthly standard. Just like I um, adjusted my standard of dress in middle school to parachute pants and members only jackets. <laughs> There's one for you Gen Xers right there. We all adjust to a standard outside of ourselves. So it's not a stretch for us to also adjust to a moral order outside of ourselves. This book says that Jesus Christ is the standard to which we should adjust. This isn't some abstract ethical ideal or philosophy or political position, but a person. Christ is the full and the fair human being. 
He's the righteous human we should all aspire to. And we don't have to look very far in our world today to see that the reigning moral authority on display is me. Not me, you. It's ourselves. What seems right to me, what feels right to me, we are our own moral authority. Some autonomous, self-governing life form moving through a series of life episodes and making decisions on the go using some sort of personal cost-benefit analysis. We live as if there is no moral order outside of ourselves to take into account. But according to the book of Proverbs, what we've been looking at for five months, according to our verse today, that pathway leads to more and more death. Just simply ask yourself, on a long enough timeline, how can a marriage survive that way? How can any relationship survive that? How can you trust your spouse? How can you trust anyone for that matter? Beyond that, do you even know who you are right now? Or who you're going to be an hour from now? It leads to more and more death. Righteousness is becoming truer to Christ because in his path is life. Second question, is this legalism? Well, legalism is obeying God with the wrong motive to earn points on his leaderboard. But Proverbs has not been teaching us that. It's not offering us a false righteousness. The gospel is clear. We are not under law, but under grace. But if we are under grace, does that mean we don't need to be a stickler to the law? We can disobey sometimes because dad will always forgive us. It's okay sometimes to be fools. Or as the next verse in Romans asks, What then? Are we to sin because we are not under law but under grace? By no means. In other words, does rejecting some form of rule following or external objective standard and coming under grace make sin no big deal anymore? Does grace make obedience an option? Does grace make right living according to Proverbs an option? Well, Paul's answer here in Romans 6 is practical, like the reasoning we have found in the book of Proverbs the past few months. He goes on to say, for when you were slaves to sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. But what fruit were you getting at that time from the things of which you are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. One translation I read says, you have gains that lead to holiness and the end is eternal life. It makes our own modern proverb of no pain, no gain a little more meaningful in that sense. The end of one path is death. The end of one path is life. We are going to give ourselves 
to something in this life, this is non-negotiable. We just will. When you were slaves to sin, we should never think that the further we move from God, the more freedom we gain. In the same way that we want to cut off the whisperer whenever we hear gossip as we learned last week, when we hear the whisperer in our heart saying, do you want to be free? You better be careful and don't give too much of yourself to God. The instant that thought creeps in, we must stop and ask ourselves, where did that come from? What is the hidden motive behind that thought? If I follow that path, where is it going to take me? Into more life or more death? Again, many paths to choose from, but there's zero possibility of no consequences. The question before us today is, do we want to stay slaves of sin? The law of God cannot get us off that deadly path, but the grace of God is not going to leave us there. If you're sick of sin, if you feel wounded this morning, and it seems like nobody cares anymore, and your heart is broken because you are experiencing that bitter aftertaste of more and more death in your life. Jesus isn't towering over you saying, I told you so. He's saying, now come to me and I will give you rest. There's nothing degrading or shaming in Christ. If we come to him, he accepts us as we are. He loves us into obedience, into wise living. And we find by experience that obeying him really is the path of life. Frank Laubach was a missionary to the Philippines. While he was there, he also created a way of teaching literacy that helped about 60 million people um, around the world learn to read. He is also the only missionary to be honored with a U.S. postage stamp, just FYI. He helped a lot of people. But more than that, Frank Laubach longed for God. So one year he tried an experiment. He spent all of 1930 on a daily journey going deeper with God. He, he was a busy guy, but he wanted to live his busy life with God. And so as he started this journey, he wrote a letter to his friend that is captured in his book. And he told him this, I resolved that I would succeed better this year with my experiment of filling every minute full of the thought of God than I succeeded last year. He would then go on to write to his friend, do not try this unless you feel dissatisfied with your own relationship with God, but at least allow me to realize all the leadership of God I can. I am disgusted with the pettiness and futility of my unled self. If the way out is not more perfect slavery to God, then what is the way out? Can we honestly examine our life and say that we are enslaved to God? It's probably true that more often than not, we are not enslaved to God. We are enslaved to ourselves with all of our pettiness, all of our futility, 
All of our selfishness. Fools. Deep inside us is not one true, whole, integrated, life-giving self, but rather a committee of competing selves. Little clones of me all sitting around some board table inside my head. The work self, the married self, the parent self, the secret self, whatever self you had in your life. Our different selves sit around this big table, each one shouting out its demands, staking its claims, fearful of being overlooked. And when the committee votes on something, it's rarely unanimous. If you feel divided and frustrated like that, if you are not wholehearted for Christ, you are dying today more than you have to. And today can be a turning point for you. Admit to yourself who you really are. Turn to Christ, the friend of sinners. Become honest with him. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity. And in whose spirit there is no deceit. If you feel out of control, tell him. Admit it to him. And he's gonna, he will help you. He will guide you into his path. He will bring you under his control. Give yourself to him. And he will give you more and more of the life that you long for. So let me end our time in Proverbs with the proverb. Proverbs 24 says this, my son, eat honey for it is good. And the drippings of the honeycomb are sweet to your taste. Know that wisdom is such to your soul. If you find it, there will be a future and your hope will not be cut off. Our wise sage giving us one last piece of wisdom here saying that pleasure awakens us to how good wisdom is. In the same way that my granny used to bake cornbread, she would take it hot out of the oven, cut out a big triangle piece, open it up, put a healthy dab of real butter on it, watch it melt. She then grabbed that plastic honey bear, squeeze honey all over it. Then she placed it in front of me, just wide-eyed, staring at that piece of cornbread. And in the same way that I used to savor that cornbread, know that wisdom is such to your soul. Our souls have senses too, and God's wisdom in Proverbs is sweet to your deepest self. And we enjoy it by living it, by eating it, by savoring it. We can't enjoy this wisdom by just looking at it. So take the wisdom we have looked at the past couple of months. Chew it. Swallow it. And in the same way that eating and joy go together, so it is with Christ. And the pleasures He gives don't fade. They don't wear out. They are your future, your life, your eternal life. And as the proverb says... Your hope will not be cut off. Enjoying Christ is our only future. And if we refuse this honey, the proverb gives us another warning. 
He who is often reproved, yet stiffens his neck, will suddenly be broken beyond healing. When God rebukes us, he is only calling us away from death, back into life and pleasures in Christ. He is patient, but if we stubbornly refuse and refuse and refuse, then every one of our heartbeats is more rebellion against a God of love, and his patience will end. His patience ended towards an entire culture at Sodom and Gomorrah. So his patience can end at any time towards us. But God is calling to every single one of us right now. This is a moment God's mercy on us if we will bow low enough to receive it. Will we obey the promptings of the Spirit and step out in new obedience beginning today? However God is speaking to each of us. He is ready right now to do a new work in you and me. God is not obligated to wait until we feel good and are ready. We are not guaranteed tomorrow. If we don't take advantage of this opportunity right now, why should he give us more? He's already waited. This is our moment with Jesus Christ who gives us every gracious incentive to humble ourselves and become decisive for him. Again, Jesus is telling us, fear not, I am the first and the last and the living one. I died and behold, I am alive forevermore and I have the keys of death and Hades. Jesus is telling us, I am the way and the truth and the life. Will you follow the righteous one in righteousness? Will you quit adding more death into your life? Will you take your spirit-prompted next step into new obedience to Christ, into wise, life-giving living? He welcomes you today. He welcomes me. New life awaits all of us. Let me pray for us. Father, save us. Save us from ourselves. Save us from, from wrong thinking. Save us from wrong feeling. We are tired of being fools in your eyes because it has only led to more and more death. We want life from you today. We need life from you today. Forgive us for being death seekers, looking for more and more ways to elevate ourselves, embracing sin, and, and just simply taking advantage of your grace. Help us to want, help us to desire to live lives that are pleasing to you and give us the confidence and assurance of your word to help us know when our way is right. And if we don't have that assurance now, if the path that we are on is adding death to our lives, don't let anything come between us humbly coming before you now eager for your forgiveness, 
eager to confess where we have chosen death in this life over choosing the life you have abundantly given us in the righteous life and death of your son Jesus. Thank you that both of those things call us today, calling us to die to ourselves, to die to our own foolish ways of living and thinking and calling us back to life in you. A life lived with you as our example, you as our guide. Father, help our wandering souls today. Help our wandering eyes to see Jesus as the cool kid. The one we long to be like. Help us to be more like him. And remind us now of the great salvation that we have in him. The members only jacket of grace that he has gifted his own. Remind us of the price he paid for us to have abundant life today. A price that has set us on the path of righteousness. A path that doesn't lead to death. And we praise you and we thank you today for Jesus. Amen. You've been listening to a message by Shelby Murphy given at Redemption Hill Church in Richmond, Virginia. For more information on the church and to hear other messages, please visit us online at www.redemptionhill.org.